Her white nightdress was smeared with blood, and a thin stream trickled down the man's bare breast, which was shown by his torn open dress. The attitude of the two had a terrible resemblance to a child forcing a kitten's nose into a saucer of milk to compel it to drink. Wheel of Genre, the podcast that just sucks the life out of your favorite books. I'm Zach. I'm Bob. I'm John. Today we are reading Bram Stoker's Dracula. What a tale. This was terrifying, but I think for different reasons than I expected. Yeah, I thought it was a, th- I thought it was a thrill. The real adventure, and I thought, you know, the way the way the narrative and the sort of like structure were fitting together, I thought was fantastic. You know, the way they were literally coming together as the sort of diaries were coming together and conversion, our common point, and that climax moment at the end. Just one example of that, but yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was a fantastic book. I was actually surprised how how much I enjoyed it. Actually, I was a little bit, I wouldn't say on the fence, but I thought, you know, it's always it can always go one of two ways when you read a long old nineteenth century novel. It really do go one of two ways, and this one went the right way, sure. <laughs> Right. I was looking at yeah, Wuthering Heights for the when I said that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear you on the 19th century novel going one of two ways. I think for me, I closed this book and I was like, this is the best book we've ever read for this podcast. Though my immediate follow-up thought was, I've actually claimed that on air more than twice. So maybe I should <laughs> maybe I should temper that a little bit. But yeah, something about this book, like the the images. And the way it comes together and jumps from scene to scene. So form, image, poetics, it all has this very cinematic quality. And I think that that might speak to why it holds up so well or why it tickles my, you know, 2023 20, brain, because it feels like I'm I'm watching a movie. In what sense would you say describe it as being like a movie in terms of like the sort of visual imagery of the story or just the, the pace of it, the the moving from different sort of scene to scene as it is with as it were with the different characters i think it's i think it's the different perspectives so Mm -hmm. like as as we all know this book is told through the form of diary entries and newspaper clippings captains captain's logs (laughs) so what we get is the ability of the quote-unquote camera Mm -hmm. to move from scene to scene place to place and we get this kind of omniscient narration that you know, if it was just told in like a omniscient narration with one single narrator, then that's just like one one bird's eye perspective. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. But what we get is a multitude of voices, a multitude of perspectives mm-hmm. that the viewer then synthesizes in their brain. And to me, that's what reminds me of the camera in that a film mm-hmm. can take place in different settings with different characters, but it's the the, the viewer synthesize well, i wonder that. if there's actually a possibility that stoker was watching cinema i mean this 19th century but only just like this is i think 1897 when this book comes out so i think you know films would have been around in that in that time period and actually i think bram stoker manages the lyceum theater in london for a while so he was he was very he would have been if anyone was to be have seen cinema at that time in london in the theater business it surely would have been him so potentially there is some kind of actual idea there and there is a big theme of this book that it's like based on like the cusp of these new technologies you know typewriters phonographs and all these things that at the time were like you know riverside to us like it's kind of novel for them to have these technologies so i think i don't know it would be interesting if that was part of his intention maybe to represent that new technology if possible Wait, I'm sorry. Did you just compare typewriters <laughs> and <laughs> things like that to Riverside? What I mean or, is it's a new technology. It's a, it's a new technology, right? <laughs> so it was a new technology in this time, but it's, it's hard to think of it. Are you getting paid? Do you have a sponsorship? What's going on here? <laughs> well, it's you by Riverside. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's another aspect of it that I love about this book is we're on the edge of a new frontier. And we have all these new technologies. 
we don't know what the limits of technology are. We have all these new ideas about what it means to be human. I love how Van Helsing, the kind of like classically trained scientist, intellectual character, he works with hypnotism, which was a huge fad at the time. And there was a lot of open questions about what could hypnotism do? What could mm. it not do? How effective was it? Was it effective for anything? And this is a pre-Freud yeah. time. Oh, this yeah. is before Freud yeah. really popularized it. Yeah. But what I love is that Van Helsing uses hypnotism, but then also his kind of foil, his counterpoint, Dracula, who stems from a dark, ancient age. He's not the new enlightened scientific man, but Dracula also uses hypnotism mm. to ensnare his victims. Yeah, interesting. I, I think that is just, again, another moment that this sort of book is on the cusp of i think that's what makes makes it a fascinating book to read because it is just at this crux moment of so many aspects you know like cinema but also like yeah and i think it's just it's reflected in it you feel that anxiety in it to like sort of think well with these new technologies coming through and with these new ideas that are emerging how you know he's obviously trying to find a place to keep fiction relevant in that kind of atmosphere you know it's like the the screen actors sort of protest right now of like it cinema is confronted by this technology technological possibility and has to sort of restake its validity or its claim as an art form to our sort of attention i think this book has that feel into it i think it sort of really does execute that well it's such an engaging story and maybe it's because that's cinematic quality potentially but i think it's also like very true to a lot of like gothic tropes as well like this book i mean in the way by it being told through letters we never once get as at least not to my memory dracula's own perspective on this he is sort of permanently the sort of the sort of shadow lurking over everything, you know, sort of the shadow to the light of, of, of that they're sh shining on things. He's the bit that sort of escapes them a little bit and they're constantly chasing Dracula. And we actually very rarely see him in this book after the early scenes with Jonathan Harker. And I think there's almost like a Lovecraftian element there of the horror is partly by us being kept in the dark so often by this book, no matter how many perspectives we have on it. Also, he's put everything into motion too. That's also kind of Lovecraftian mm. as the the darkness has made all of these gears start turning and now you have to figure them out. You have to solve them before they come and get yeah. you from out of the darkness. The dark puppet master. The dark puppet master. Black. Well, I think the horror, it, you know, we have this kind of evil genius puppet master type Dracula, but there's also this kind of cultural geographic horror as well. Like, it's not it's not just that Dracula shows up in London and we got to stop him before he does his nefarious deeds. It's we penetrate into the darkness of Eastern Europe, this kind of land of superstition and on the cusp of these, you know, Turkish empires, this, this land that has been just soaked with blood across the centuries. And I think that there's there's really a, a like far Western perspective peering eastward and feeling uneasy with what they see this is the you know the former byzantine lands basically i think that's one of my favorite parts of dracula and one of them that i think was the scariest is the experience of being a foreigner so you know dracula wants to come to london and he's going to blend in and not be the foreigner but jonathan harker has the experience of not knowing what's going on not understanding languages, feeling isolated, feeling trapped in a land that he doesn't understand. He experiences being the foreigner, regardless of where he is. He tries to communicate. He listens into conversations and he picks out little words that he kind of does understand. When he goes to the, the inn, he's at the Golden Kroner, I think. And he's talking. We're trying to, trying to have a conversation with the villagers who are there. 
And all he can figure out is that people are saying things like Satan and witch and hell and vampire. And he's just nodding along, trying to get involved in these conversations. He, he can't help himself. He can't communicate. He can't escape. I thought that was very, a very scary aspect of this. Bob, you, you lived in Prague for a little while. Do you feel like Bram Stoker's <laughs> descriptions Depiction of Eastern of Europe? Any overlap well, there or, or <laughs> I think that doesn't matter too. I mean, it's very interesting to like see a foreign land depicted. And I think it's fun to see everyone like different languages happening, the bustle of these different well, not bustle, I mean they're they're small, small places, but this vibrant different cultures. And this is a place where there's three or four or five cultures all intersecting. So that's exciting to see. But I think the scariness is just not being able to understand what's happening. And all of these people are giving you warnings, but they're giving you warnings in other languages and you can't get it. And you try to get it and you think, oh yeah, things are probably going to be fine. I should probably get in this, this coach with this scary guy with red eyes and everyone is warning you, but they're warning you in languages you don't understand. Yeah. There's, there's the explicit warning about Dracula and, and just like, you know, people telling him, don't go out, don't go out. But I think there's <laughs> yeah. also the horror of something that's very, very similar, but just a little bit different. So like there's this moment where an old lady comes up to his room and it says that she, she says to him in a hysterical way, must you go? Oh, young hair, must you go? And she says, don't you know what day it is? And he's like, it's the 4th of May. And she's like, oh, yes, but what day? And she says, it is the eve of St. George's Day. Do you not know that tonight when the clock strikes midnight, all the evil things in the world will have full sway? So what she does then is then she gives him a crucifix and he thanks her. But then he says, I did not know what to do for as an English churchman, I have been taught to regard such things as in some metal. I have been taught to regard such things as in some measure idolatrous. And yet it seems so ungracious to refuse an old lady, meaning so well and in such a state of mind. So there's a sense in which, you know, they're both Christians. They both follow the cross, but what she has done feels in some way almost pagan mm. to him, kind of like holding on to his object of, of worship as a literal talisman of power. And in that sense, like he feels like he's one with these people. He feels like he's in a familiar enough area, but there's just a twist on it that makes him feel uneasy. Yeah, that's interesting. Obviously, you know, him as a good Protestant, you know, doesn't believe in all these Catholic, you know, idolatrous uh, things. I think there's also an aspect in which kind of Jonathan Hogg is a little bit, he dismisses these warnings because he thinks they're just mere superstitions. And there's a kind of comeuppance mm -hmm. there for him when he actually does obviously getting, you know, taken into the castle and ends up in a sanitarium later in the later in the novel because he didn't heed these warnings. He's like, these are superstitious people. Ah, oh, forget about it, whatever. So there's a kind of irony here, I think, that Bramstall is bringing in that this sort of like rationalistic sort of Protestant man is sort of underestimating real threats to his life because he dismisses the possibility of them being superstitions are becoming real in some sense and i guess van helsing maybe is a character who represents the opposite of that represents maybe the sort of the good attitude or the right attitude to have towards these sort of superstitions or phenomena which is not to necessarily dismiss them out of hand but to investigate mm -hmm. them yeah van helsing looks at them and says i'm not going to stand in fear of the supernatural of the the horror the monstrous the paranormal but he says i'm going to measure them scientifically i'm going to do research in archives and i'm going to treat them as though they are things with cause and yeah. effect 
and you know mitigate their their ill effects across London. I do like how you brought up the mental institution that Jonathan Harker is, I guess you could say imprisoned in, interned in, because, you know, I I I do notice that basically every character we meet here who is mentally ill is not just like naturally mentally ill. They're mentally ill because of a evil presence. It gives you a phenomenon that you're familiar with in everyday life, mental illness, and it posits a new cause for it that maybe you know, we haven't considered. Renfield, of course, being the other person who we meet. But yeah, I do think there's an interesting opposition there between like sort of Christian rationalism and then like you say, this pagan sort of spirit that is represented by these villagers who are warning him about Dracula. And then Dracula himself is like embodies all of that that kind of history. Right. Like when he's first talking, when John Harker first meets him and he still isn't entirely sure who he's dealing with here. And he's sort of distracted by the sophistication of Dracula. And, you know, the, the sort of the quality of his house and everything, he thinks, well, this man can't possibly be like these superstitious people out there because he seems so civilized. He's... But then, you know, th- things, strange things start happening, you know, and uh, among one of them is just the fact that he's talking about history as if he was there. He says whenever he spoke of his house or his history, he said we and spoke almost in the plural like a king speaking. And he talks about how his, his whole history. So he says here in the whirlpool of European races, the Ergic tribes bore down from Iceland, the fighting spirit which Thor and Woden gave them which their berserkers displayed to such fell intent on the seaboards of Europe, eh, and of Asia and Africa too, till Pete the people thought that the werewolves themselves had come. And he's telling this history as if it's sort of like his history as if he'd been there all along. And I think that's sort of the first sign we, we really get, that John Harker gets where he starts getting suspicious of Dracula. But it, it does seem like Bram Stoker's playing with a lot of these themes of like the Christian versus the pagan and, you know, sort of how far we should go with Enlightenment rationalism. And like I say, it's this crook moment. And the aristocratic versus Mm. the modern, too. Jonathan Harker, the individual, the company man, versus Dracula, the man who Mm. speaks of his family line in terms of we, who speaks of himself as not just like, not even just a family, but as like a member of a Mm. race extending from, you know, the Vikings. You know, these are very different perspectives on how the individual can think of themselves. Dracula is very slippery, though, too. He appears in costumes many times and uh, imitates other people. And even sometimes as a nobleman, as an aristocrat, he seems like a con man. Jonathan starts to see weird things that show little cracks in this veneer of, of nobility. And he starts to... He, I don't know if Jonathan's really thinking about it, but the reader is thinking, that is a very odd thing to do. Dracula drives his own coach. Jonathan doesn't know that. He just thinks it's a strange coach driver we find out that he has no servants at home obviously he can't but there's little scenes where it shows that he's the effect of this makes him look kind of like a con man he's he's jonathan sees him making the beds at one point even though he lies and says oh the servants will make the bed later don't worry about it but it's dracula smoothing over the sheets his castle is in ruins there's still beautiful things there but lots of the things are broken it's dusty it's old no one cleans it and then all of his fine things are just piled up in one room in a weird pile of gold. It's a very strange way to be noble. Mm. So he's kind of putting on that, even though he is, his his bloodline extends really far back. He's aristocratic. He's still trying to keep up the appearance of being aristocratic. It's almost like he represents and like that wanna, sort of thing that's coming back, you know, from that we thought we'd moved on from. You know, we think, oh, we've got an enlightenment rational, you know, rationalist mm. project. We've we're overcoming suspicion, you know, superstition. And then I feel like Dracula seems to be representing all of the, all of the other, the, you know, the the flip side of that, 
that's coming right back at us and he embodies those sort of fears and anxieties, I think. So I think it's almost essential that they, they mm. are these old things that are nonetheless coming back. I want to know how these these kind of mask off moments, these moments of revelation about Dracula, where we kind of learn what you described as like a con man. How did that make you guys feel? Like, because horror books are all about the way they make you feel, you know? And I, I'm kind of like, mm. I kind of want to dive into that as like an element of the horrific. Mm. I think they play on different kind of classic horror things when he when he imitates jonathan harker and he goes down into the town to deliver the letters so people can see jonathan and think that oh the englishman is doing fine that's quite scary because someone has taken your your identity and run off with it and they can do whatever they want if he wants to do something terrible it will then be on jonathan so that's that's its own interesting horror thing the pile of gold and the kind of mistreatment of aristocratic things or noble set pieces is troubling in a way it's like almost animalistic you know hoarding all of this stuff and not using it correctly it's like a monster kind of or a dragon getting all of the gold and keeping it to itself that's it that's its own fear Mm. i guess animalistic uh, taking taking the effects of humans yeah i think a lot of the fear from this book i mean i i guess for me it's a hard question to answer because i don't think i felt fear while reading this book it didn't that's not how it it struck me at no point was i reading this feeling you know scared so that's not really how I responded to it. But I feel like the fear of it comes, or at least it becomes fearsome when you sort of really try and bring these ideas to life and what what, what the implications actually are of mm-hmm. them. I think, you know, the the fear of this book is represented as like sort of the, it seems to be all of the stuff that we've tried to rationalize away or try to civilize away or tried to sort of pray away that nonetheless are still there and still coming back and they can claim people we love and it can claim us. It's more powerful than we are. It can reclaim us. So I think, you know, with there's lots of rationalism in this book and Dracula then is does things that seem to break physical laws. The main characters in this book are very Christian and this, you know, he's, one of the words that these villagers call Dracula when they're warning about him is Satan. That's the main one. Satan and hell is what he's called. Which or dog, Poco, Satan and hell. So he represents all that stuff, that re- these religious anxieties. And there's also, I think, bodily anxieties with like being bitten with blood and losing blood. And mm-hmm. I, so I, I think the fear comes from this sense of all these rejected or oppressed things coming back, which I think is why it's so interesting that this book comes on the crux of you know Freud becoming mainstream. Because again, I think Bram Stoker mm-hmm. is an educated, wealthy you know man in London at the centre of the art scene. He's probably aware of Freud. Do you know, like, it, he's very much at the crux, mm-hmm. but he was almost certainly one of the first people to hear about Freud. If you just think about his social position and, and, and where he's from and all of these different factors, he would have been among the pe- first people to know about Freud. So I think, yeah, I think he just, he represents this moment in history so, so well in this book through the sort of narrative and the imagery of Dracula. I think those things are still frightening to us. The idea of something being mm. un- no, un- unpredictable, breaking physical law still bothers us. I think mm. that the, the sort of body horror aspect of it still very much bothers us, but I didn't. I guess I didn't feel those emotions while reading it. Maybe it's just the mode of presentation is too far removed from like me feeling that kind of visceral reaction to it. I think that just to take a step back, I do think that fear is not really what I think what we would expect to feel from this novel, right? Like mm. fear is when you view yourself as the object of harm or potential object of harm. And I think that horror tales can kind of do that or make you feel mm. scared. But for me, I feel like the the feeling is of horror and disgust, which is different than fear. 
I once read a great definition of disgust, which was that it's the sensation of feeling physiologically separated out of the world, like this moment of just kind of like pulling back and away out of reality. It, you know, one of those existentialist novels gave me that, but nausea. I think that, I think that similar to like that? nausea, Sartre. a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I think that this is not a book of fright. Like we don't have any jump scares in this book. But what we do have are these moments of radical reshifting of the frame. When he opens the doorway just a little bit and peers in and sees Dracula cleaning up the dishes. You know what I mean? That's this moment of just like disgust because what you have is someone who claims to be an aristocrat who lives in a castle, but he's doing the servant's work. And it, you're just like, ugh. It's moments of ick. <laughs> <laughs> moments of ick. I think a big one that would have been a big fear happening in the Victorian time is being so corrupted you cannot come back. Dracula doesn't just kill you or make you afraid. Dracula turns you into Dracula. And I think that was quite terrifying because it's not that you are really sinning yourself. You might just get a little bit close to sin. But then sin reaches up, bites you, and you can never go back. You cannot be repaired. I think that's probably frightening, especially when it was published. I think things that were frightening to me is the atmosphere that he builds through letters and through Jonathan Harker's experience. I think the first half is the scariest part. The one image I want to think about is when Dracula crawls out of the window. Because if you just oh, yeah. say someone crawl out of the window, oh, it's Spider-Man. That's fun. Not frightening at all. But the way that Jonathan is telling us, okay, I'm trapped. I cannot get home. It's been months. I don't even know if my fiance knows that I'm alive or dead. I can't get out. I've tried to get out once and Dracula opened the door and just said, good luck. Those wolves are going to eat you. I am trapped here. Now I'm going to see if I can crawl out of the window to crawl down to safety. And he's on the, the edge of a cliff that he can't even see the bottom of. And at that point, at this, this rising anxiety, while we are kind of siding with Jonathan, experiencing this, this anxiety, he sees this creep push itself out of the window go vertically down and crawl like a lizard and it's dracula going down the wall i thought that was things like that are spooky but i think we're frightened i'm frightened because i've been taken along with jonathan through his his point of view very illuminati conspiracy theory you know the the wealthy aristocrats are all lizard mm. people and here comes dracula <laughs> crawling yes, down the side, <laughs> drinking the blood of the young i think there's a lot of anxiety in this film as well around like relationships and with women in particular mm. i mean the lucy westerner are taking so many different men's bloods like van helsing performs like what three yeah. four blood, like blood transfusions <laughs> including on himself three studs full of blood so much blood and like no matter how much blood they give her, no matter how much she gets from these men and the important context here is that she gets she's writing she's writing a letter one of the first times we hear from lucy she's writing a letter to mina who is you know becomes much more of an important character later in the book she is almost like sort of like a man she's got the mind of a man she's she's so smart <laughs> and but lucy is much more of a you know sort of classic sort of feminine character she embodies a lot more sort of standard aspects of the, the sort of female role at the time and she's getting all the proposals mina's not getting many proposals she's sort of already betrothed kind of to jonathan harker so she's not really getting proposals she's already sort of married off she's already settled it's fine but lucy is a much more she received three proposals proposals the first one from the american quincy morris no sorry the first one from john seward the the psychiatrist and uh, not psychiatrist the uh, psychologist what was he termed it's a psychologist 
psychologist. Yeah, Doctor John Seward, psychologist. Psycho- yeah, he's the so head psychologist. Of the sanitarium. The sanitarium. Oh yeah, yeah he's yeah. yeah. So John Seward, the psychologist who deals with Renfield's case, he proposes to her, but he's a little bit shy. You know, he's a little bit unsure of himself. So she, you know, she rebuffs his proposal, and then he says, "Ah, oh, well, I'll be a friend to you for life. Friend to you for life. The dearest friend you will ever have." And he stays true to that the whole book. He is a friend for life. He is indeed a good friend. Just a friend. And then Quincy Morris comes along, charismatic American guy. He's like, yeah, yeah, I want to marry you as well. And she's like, sorry, don't want to marry you either, I'm afraid, even though you've got really good stories about the time you went abroad. And then he's like, oh, well, I'll be a dear friend to you for life. A dear friend for life. And sure <laughs> enough, he was a dear friend for life. And then <laughs> both of these men end up giving like half of the blood in their body for her. And then she just is has used it all up and she needs another blood transfusion the next day. And then finally, you know, she decides to, to to marry Arthur, who actually plays the smallest role of all these three men in the book. He's kind of useless mm-hmm. for the most part. He doesn't really contribute much. Meanwhile, these other guys whose who's proposal she de- rebuffed were at the ab- absolute center of saving her life and or trying to save her life and giving all these other transfusions. So I think there's a lot of anxiety there about, like, women. There's a lot of strange stuff going on here of these very, very virtuous, chivalrous men acting in these heroic ways on behalf of this blood-sucking woman. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and and to me, I mean, this obviously isn't on the surface surface, but the blood feel, the blood transfusions feel like it's kind of standing in for kind of anxieties about, you know, reproduction, sex, you know, she's betrothed herself. She's promised herself to one person, but she's taking blood from all these other people and they're told, oh, we can't tell him. You know, we have to keep it from him that basically all of our blood is throwing through her veins. <laughs> but the the thing is also she's kind of being wooed, seduced, hypnotized by Dracula. Mm. And she's going to be taken in by this enigmatic Eastern European foreigner who's just come <laughs> to town. But it's <laughs> only when she takes the blood of Dracula right that it really takes it feels like you know it reminds me of like alien getting impregnated by this kind of monstrous thing Mm. you know it she takes dracula's blood and suddenly she is fundamentally changed into something evil yeah and that's where a lot of fear comes i think there's a transformation and again it goes like that that's idea you're saying about the uncanny of these things things are not quite identical with themselves any longer there's a weird disjunct, a weird gap there, and there's a lot of fear and anxiety in that sort of space. There's definitely, I think, at the root of a lot of the fear here. And then the fear for the second part of the book is, because uh, it's such a vast book, it's really hard to sort of, you know, I feel like we've talked about it in such sort of broad strokes. But the nitty-gritty of it, there's so, I don't know, I feel like we're not doing justice to the narrative almost, but they they focus all their energy on saving Lucy, and then she ends up becoming a vampire herself, and then they need to sort of kill her. and But they're killing her to save her soul. Because every single one of the characters is very Christian in this sense. So the battles they're waging here are not for the life of these women, but for the soul of these women, the immortal soul. You know, this allows them to kill her body, her undead body, because it's not her soul anymore. It doesn't live there anymore. They fail in that mission. But then Mina is given the blood baptism by Dracula. And she knows that eventually she will be become a vampire herself unless they can kill Dracula. So then the whole second whole sort of the final act of the book is is building to the second act and the th- final act building up to them actually trying to save Mina's soul and her life. They try and save her life first. They fail with Lucy's life, but they get her soul. Mina, they actually manage to save her life. But And then all of these men are trying to work into towards saving this one woman from this, you know, 
invasion from Dracula. That, that is really sort of like the, the heart of the book, I think. And what's interesting to me is the me- these men are like the most virtuous characters I've ever seen in all of literature. Every single one of these men, Van Helsing, Seward, Morris, Arthur Wormwood even, he doesn't play a big role, but he's still quite virtuous, Jonathan Harker, and also Mina Harker herself, they're such virtuous, good, rational Christians. Every single one of them. They all have their own, you know, different qualities, different traits, but fundamentally they're Christian and they're rational. They don't do anything wrong. Like th- these characters are above reproach. The entire book, and we're talking quite a long book here, these characters don't do anything that was maybe immoral or cowardly, less than virtuous. They don't act less than rationally. If you look at the book, you know, most, most contemporary horror, you know, there'll be the classic sort of situation of, let me just go look in the basement of this haunted house. And then you're like, no, that's a stupid idea. But this book, there's no like moments where you think oh, that's a stupid idea. These characters have made the wrong decision. I think that's almost what makes the parts that don't fit into this, all the these horrific aspects we talked about, even that more sort of powerful and sort of timeless because it, they're working against a pure good. You know, yeah. it's a pure good versus evil struggle in this book. The characters are pure a good. culture of pure good. Yeah, a I culture of say. pure good as well. Yeah, you know. All, all of these people embodying that and kind yeah. of giving us this idea that everyone in Britain are these rational, noble, educated, morally upright people. Mm. And then there's this menace. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's it. It's, it, it's very sim- as, as much as it's quite a dense book and as much as it's very complex and articulated in the sense of a lot of moving parts, it really is a very simple book in that sense. From a moral perspective, it's, it's very simple, very cut and dry. I think that is a large reason why it's been, you know, it, it sustained our interest so long because it really is a, just a great good versus evil story. I, I want to rewind just a little bit to one thing you said because it really got my mind worrying a little bit. You said we haven't really done justice to talking about the plot of this, and this is kind of like a meta question I have. Do you feel like we have the same obligation? to stick to narrative in books that have kind of written themselves into the DNA of of our culture at this point. Like, uh, you know, like stepping away from Bram Stoker's Dracula, if we were to talk about the Bible, do do we need to go through every step of Genesis? Like, do do you feel like people need that? Or or do you feel like there's a certain amount of taken for grantedness that we can can extend? I mean, I'm, I'm inclined to say maybe it's precisely more necessary than ever to recite the plot of something when it is so ingrained to make sure that we've not made some assumptions that weren't quite justified, you know, to go back to the beginning and actually read it, I think is the whole point is you pay even more attention to the plot in those senses. So I don't think you can necessarily take for granted these things, <clears throat> but in this book, I think one of the things that like really impressed me about this book, the first to be in the first time I've read it is just how every single thing you, we know about vampires, even today from fiction all comes out of this book. It's almost like this book is the great original whole from which everything else is like a, a fragment. It's such a comprehensive book in that sense on the vampire phenomenon. I was expecting to be a lot of stuff that's like either. So I was expecting to come to the plot of this book, right? So I was almost had this experience of like, I'm aware of Dracula as a cultural phenomenon. You know, I've seen, do you know what I mean? I've, I've, the Count from the Muppets. Do you know what I mean? Dracula is just a thing in our <laughs> lives. Like it's just, it's just literally everywhere. We know what a vampire is. There's not a single kid in who's seven years old in the United States who doesn't know what a vampire is like. But to come back to the original book, I was almost curious to see whether what I re- read would actually be radically different from that or undermine that. And actually, 
it was impressive how point by point, like you say, it's all right here, exactly as you would expect to see it. There wasn't actually much, much if anything, that surprised me in this book. The only thing that potentially surprised me was just how pronounced those themes are in this, how genuine, like, usually a great text is misunderstood by its interpreters. But I feel like in this sense, the stuff that's come afterwards has kind of really nailed the same points. So yeah, I don't know. I guess it's equally important if, as to go back to it. But in this case, I found that I didn't find any great surprises, as sometimes you might find. One, one critic said, his name's William Hughes. He says that Dracula has, quote, seriously inhibited discussions of the undead and gothic fiction because it has overshadowed any other portrayals of the undead. And now when you think of undead, mm. it's all defined by vampires. Thought that was an interesting thing mm. to when something is such a powerhouse and comes to define every horror after this and has been parodied a hundred times probably. It's I wonder if it could really eclipse anything, overshadow anything, or if it's still producing. Mm. Is it in the way or is it helping push things along? Well, I do feel like a lot of even even vampire books that try to move beyond Stoker. I'm looking at you, Richard Matheson's what was I called? Omega Man? Oh, yeah. What was I called? I Am Legend. I Am, I am Legend, yeah. yeah I am the legend. movie was called Omega yeah. Man. I remember in that yeah. book, you have those scenes of, of the women undressing and trying to you know, seduce him. <laughs> yes. uh, come out, yeah. come out, as she slips off her. Yeah. And he's like, no, I won't do it. I haven't felt the touch of a woman for 10 years, but I'm not going to do it because she's just going to bite me. And to me, I was shook by that depiction as like a new image to me. But I realized after reading this book that it's really just taking the heart of a single moment in Stoker's Dracula. Yeah. The three weird mm -hmm. sisters. Uh, yes. he, you know, there's, I don't, I don't know if they have a different name. And well, that's uh, the exact name that's used for the, the witches in Beth as well. The, the weird sisters. Yeah. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I'm yeah. Clearly not. So, so he refers to them as weird sisters, I believe, in this this book. But does, I yeah. wasn't sure if we had a collective noun for for these three. I, I guess, guess brides of Dracula. Yeah. Brides of Dracula. But um, movie. yeah, yeah. Holes of but Dracula. you know they, they're, they're called they, wives and brides later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His harem. But uh, <laughs> I never called that here though. I thought it was interesting. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's there's this sexual tension, right? Like, like, or rather, I don't want to say there's sexual tension. There's sexual attraction from the victim mm. towards you know the, the the prey runs to the predator in this in this sense he's being pulled towards them and he has to resist they and, got his blood going you could say oh, yeah straight to a <laughs> boil what i thought really interesting about the the three vampire women is there's three and there's also the three suitors of lucy you know and they're all pe three men giving blood mm. and they don't take marriage they all say nope i'll be a friend for life friend for life like you said john they don't force anything they just show up and give blood whereas the three sisters are going to force and take the blood and that's completely erotic whereas the other three guys there's no eroticism at mm, all just transfusion i thought that was an well, interesting it's love, thing going right on. it's a transfusion <laughs> It, it, yeah it's the it's the difference between like erotic taking of blood versus like charity mm -hmm. of giving the blood at the at great mm -hmm. you know personal cost to your quote life force or something like that <laughs> but there's an interesting question though which one would you enjoy more <laughs> Are you trying to send me to hell here giving, giving blood. <laughs> why is it that why is it you think that dracula has managed to like hegemonize the whole genre of the undead in a sense and do you think like bob do you think that kind of like scholasticism that we see in like the vampire fiction 
you know, universe or world or sequence, or whatever. It, it, it do you, don't know. Well, why do you think that is? That and where do you think that's going to go? Is it going to stay with us? I don't know. With for the undead, we have two main things, right? We have the vampire and the mm-hmm. zombie. So one from Eastern Europe, written by Englishmen, but taken from the legends of Eastern Europe, and then one from Voodoo, which has now been completely removed from Voodoo and has its own life. Whereas the vampire, I think when you the zombie keeps as you adapt it, it feels original. But I feel like if you try to adapt the vampire, you can't. It mm. feels silly when you try to readapt the vampire, except in I Am Legend. But really, those are more like zombies than vampires, even though they're called vampires. But I can't think of any serious change to vampires. And then I can't think of any other significant undead tropes besides those two zombies and vampires. You have Only Lovers Left Alive, the Jim Jarmusch film about mm. vampires kind of living on in Detroit as these kind of garage rock musician shut-in types. Yes. I thought that was a interesting reimagination, but I don't know if it was particularly effective. You know, it didn't... And they're, they're just still vampires. They're not a different kind of undead. Well, it's just vampires told in a different way. And, and it's taking the fundamental signifier, I think, of the Eastern European aristocrat, which is, you know, bohemian, and then saying, well, what else is bohemian? How about a garage rock musician <laughs> in Detroit? <laughs> You know, so it's not I I don't think it's fundamentally doing anything different, but it is kind of reimagining it for a contemporary world, which is which is good. More interesting than than, you know, kind of Count Von Count or whatever the Taika Waititi parody is called. I can't remember at this moment, which is very funny, but it's also like we're, we're still working with the same fundamental tropes. Right. Well, what is the difference between a zombie and a vampire? Is it to some degree, like obviously not the blood sucking, but there seems almost a difference in, like, like you said, it's the, the Eastern European aristocrat versus just the mindless, pure, like their life sort of creature. You know, bodies without brains. In the early stories, zombies were a reanimation of either dead flesh or living people whose bodies had their wills had been taken over by a like shamanistic figure type mm. who controls them as though like puppets. So they're, they're living, they're moving, but they're fundamentally under the will and control of someone else. I think that later that mm. gets reinterpreted as a kind of like scientific, rational explanation. The human, the soul has left the body, but now it's like a virus or a fungus or, you know, any other kind of like scientifically grounded explanation for why bodies are moving and hungry for flesh. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Could a third alternative for undead be a Frankenstein, though? The that seems to be distinct from the the vampire and the um, zombie to me. Or I is vampire is Frankenstein a species of zombie? I don't think Frankenstein is a species of zombie. I think that he is. Well, first off, Frankenstein isn't malignant. He's not out to kill people in the way that a mm. serial killer or you know, agent of destruction is out to kill people. I feel like Frankenstein incidentally kills people, but fundamentally Frankenstein has a soul. And I think Frankenstein wants to be good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We can, we'll have to read Frankenstein, I think, to really dive deeper on this question. I, I don't think I would place Frankenstein in those traditions. I think I would place Frankenstein in the mad scientist makes a deal with the devil and it goes wrong. Mm. The Faustian. John. The Faustian <laughs> yeah. Uh, lineage. Yeah. Mm. 
I think the nature of the monster is different too. It's like a Wizard of Oz. You know, the the vampire has no soul. Then <laughs> Frankenstein is a brain without a body. You get it a body, and then vampires have no brain at all. And the mummy has no love. And the mummy has no love. <laughs> he just wants his queen back. That might be a Brendan Fraser's mummy <laughs> reading of the situation. But <laughs> okay, guys, I have one final thought. Let's talk about garlic written into the lore of vampirism for sure though well i guess okay so not just garlic but crosses too like what are these things that dracula hates and i I love how in this book it actually gives us a little bit of explanation he compares the smell of garlic flowers to the river leave or you know spanish conquistadors searching for the fountain of youth in florida you know in the new world like both of these smells are connected to youth and regeneration and the soul's rebirth and th- and 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 things like of that nature and I, I don't know if i personally would ever compare the smell of garlic to these things but it's really interesting how that's the reason why dracula doesn't like garlic i think this is the first novel that does that too I think yeah. he came up with garlic. We read, what did we read a long time ago? Was the, yeah. Oh, 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 that one. The John Polidori. That's uh, Lord Byron's personal physician. He wrote, based on Lord Byron's like notes about a poem about vampires, he wrote a novel called The Vampire, which is basically just about Lord Byron. Yeah, that book was great, but no, no, mm. no garlic in that one and no fear of crosses. No. You know, in the start, I, I had brought up how he views the cross as, as superstitious, but later, you know, when he, when he finds it's effective, he does wonder whether there's like an innate goodness to the cross or whether the cross channels feelings and memories of. It, it, is it the cross? But I don't actually learned this when I was looking this up from the book. It's not a cross. It's a crucifix. Oh, so you have to have Jesus on it. Yeah. I think that's the difference. That's what makes it superstitious or sort of idolatrous, oh. right? The, the the crucifix has to have Jesus on it, whereas the cross, just cross. So I think is that it's a crucifix that's the problem, not that it's a cross. Lending evidence and argument to your earlier point that you need to stick close to the text, because what has happened here is my my reading of the text has been overwritten by those cowards in Hollywood who won't show <laughs> um, <laughs> naked man on the cross. You know, they just show two planks of wood glued together interesting very interesting all right guys any last words on bram stoker's dracula i think i've said my piece on it great book. i'm excited to talk about the movie yeah so now we are going to talk about the movie 1931's dracula this one this episode is for patreon listeners if you are a fan of the show if you like what we do if you want to support us the easiest thing you could do is head on over to our patreon and give it a subscription. You will unlock all these episodes we are recording specifically for Patreon. I do know that times are tough, and if that is the case for you, rating the podcast on whatever platform you use and giving us a follow helps just as much. All right, guys. Good episode. Talk to you later, Bob and John. Talk to you later, John Zach. Talk to you later, Zach and Bob.